Ever since the beginning of men, there have been few things as influential as the written word. From inspiring the masses to educating the individuals. But for one man, this mere ink on paper will become something much more. For he will be able to change the world around him. But will before it be something good? Or will he instead unleash something much more sinister? For this man is named Alan Wake. Welcome back to the Pixel Horror Video Game Podcast. The show where each week we take a dive into the world of horror-themed video games. We can everything from those big AAA titles that you know and love, down to the small indies you may not even heard of. We're going to be talking about what's great about them, what's bad about them, and the scary. I am your host on this little journey into the darkness, Duke Nuke McCracken. So for today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at a game in preparation for its upcoming sequel that has been very long awaited by many. We're going to be talking about Alan Wake, developed by Remedy Entertainment, a Finnish company, known for making a wide variety of rather interesting games, published by Microsoft the Xbox 360 in 2010, with a release a couple years later for the PC, published by THQ Nordic. Several years later in 2018, we finally got a remastered version for most major consoles, thanks to Epic Games. Now, at the time of its original release, the game was fairly well received by critics, a lot of people praising its story, the way the game is presented, some of the gameplay, specifically the shooting, as well as the game's use of light and dark. While it did sell fairly well, it didn't quite hit the big numbers that they were really hoping for, especially as much money was put into the development of this game. Now, I didn't get to play this game on its initial release as I didn't have a 360 at the time. But a year or two after the PC release, I was able to pick this up, and I've actually found it to be a fairly enjoyable game. Really loved the story. Shooting was, I found decent. Not the best out there. Definitely not the worst. Now, if you like games that aren't quite overly scary, this would definitely be one I would highly recommend for you. While it does use a lot of horror elements, it's not really jumping out its way to do a lot of jump scares or anything particularly gory or over the top. If you enjoy Stephen King type novels and movies, yeah, this is definitely a pretty good recommendation for you. 
Now, this is a third-person shooter. The biggest focus on what you're going to be doing throughout the game is going to be shooting, running around. Not really much in the way of puzzle solving. There are some various collectibles you will pick up throughout. And then you do get some little back and forth between some daytime moments where you get to walk around some areas a little bit and talk with some people, get some story setups. Then the game flips back to the night settings where the action happens. Now let's talk a little bit about the developments. So before the release of Alan Wake, Remedy rose to a little bit of fame thanks to the release to a couple games known as Max Payne and Max Payne 2, the fall of Max Payne. The third person shooters, you took on the role of a New York police detective who was seeking revenge against some various gangs for the death of his wife. And it was fairly popularized for shooting mechanics. It's use of a new idea called bullet time, which by jumping and diving throughout the game, you enter into some slow motion phases, which allows you to target enemies more effectively. After the release of Max Payne, took a small little break, at which point they started developing a new idea. They wanted to do something a little bit different from Max Payne. They wanted to put you in the shoes of someone that's not a military or certain combat veteran. They wanted to put you into the shoes of a everyday man. So having taken a great deal of inspiration from Stephen King, as well as stuff such as Twin Peaks, decided to put you in the role of a writer. The original vision for this game is actually quite different from what we got today. What they originally were going What they originally were going for, they're actually looking to make a open world game, much similar to Grand Theft Auto. It was going to be heavy emphasis on survival. The game was to feature a Traditional day and night cycle. With attention during the day, you'd go out and explore the world and pick up various items and resources, which you would take back to a little base area where you would use those items to create various torches and lamps where you'd fend off enemies during the night. The first three years on this development, that's kind of what they were pushing for. Making everything that's fairly large and ambitious. In fact, if you go back and look at various YouTubes for original showings of this game, you can actually see some of these elements. And when they first show this game off behind the scenes, in order to help push a little bit of enthusiasm for this game, as well as to help look for a publisher for it, this was kind of what they was shown off. This time, three Microsoft. At this time, Microsoft took a look at the game after a lot of other people published it, decided they wanted it for themselves, so they picked up the title. But unfortunately, even with Microsoft's help behind them, there was a great deal of struggles trying to make this game work. They couldn't quite figure out how to get the story elements to work with the open world survival gameplay. So after a great deal of struggling, they finally realized that what they had envisioned wasn't just going to happen. So they decided to get together, put the game on pause for a couple months, which all of the heads of the working at the studio all got together and were kind of forced to pound this game out to figure out what they were going to make. 
So when they walked out, decided that they, instead of making such a open world survival game, they wanted to make this a great deal more story focused. In fact, they wanted to make this game feel like a well, a TV show. So they broke it up into various chapters. And they even ended each episode with a little previous ons and what's going to be happening. And even fetch your different music for each of the chapters. Now you can still see little elements of the open world game kind of left in there. Especially when you get little moments where you're having to drive various vehicles around in order to reach different points in the game. Still has a great deal of heavy focus on traveling from point A to point B. As it neared its completion date, Microsoft did decide they wanted to make a little change. They didn't want to release this game for the PC like it was originally intended to be. They wanted this to be a 360 exclusive title. That's not quite what Remedy wanted. They decided to go with it because hey, Microsoft's putting money out there for it. The game released. It was pretty well received. Received enough that they even released a couple of DLCs that were supposed to bridge the gap between their intended sequel. But unfortunately, that sequel never quite came to fruition, mostly because the game didn't bring in quite the money it was hoping for, even with the release for the PC a couple of years later. Now, we did see little bits of elements of the sequel that they intended to make. did finally get used for another little game they call, made called Quantum Break. But thankfully, here we are 13 years later. And we're finally getting a sequel to this game that a lot of people have been waiting for for a very long time. And it's not going to be more of a third-person shooter. They're focusing on making more survival horror, which has me very excited. And just a few days, we're finally going to get to get see this game. Very excited for it. So next, let's talk about our characters. Starting with our protagonist, who you'll be playing as. Alan Wake, a famed thriller writer who became known for writing a series of crime novels about a detective known as Alex Casey. But after the release of his sixth book, Alan Wake was struck with a serious case of writer's block and has been struggling ever since with coming up with a new ideas for his novels. Alan was inspired to take up writing through the works of Stephen King. His first writing gig was actually for a TV show called Night Springs, a show which you can actually catch various episodes of by turning on various TVs throughout the game. And Night Springs is a horror anthology series that is heavily, heavily inspired by shows such as Twilight Zone and Tales of the Darkness. From a young age, he's been known to get in quite a bit of trouble and struggle throughout his life due to alcohol, drug dependencies, even having a quick timber. Now let's talk about his wife, Alice, a famed photographer who actually encouraged Alan to take this little vacation into Bright Falls that we're actually going to be seeing throughout the game. We also have his best friend and his publicist, Barry Willer, and the local sheriff, Sheriff Breaker. Next we have our or secondary characters. We have Cynthia Weaver, a rather odd character who seems to be very concerned about the darkness. Rose, who works at the local diner and the self-proclaimed biggest fan of Alan Wake. Rusty, who works for the Parks and Wildlife, 
and rents out various cabins. Then we have Carl Stuckey, who's a gas station attendant. He's supposed to be actually renting the cabin to Alan Wake. Thomas Zane, a once famous poet who disappeared quite a few years back. The love of his life, Barbie Yeager, who drowned mysteriously in Coldern Lake. Then we have Robert Nightingale, an FBI agent who seems to be more interested in that old Western practice of shoot first and ask questions later. And finally, we have the Anderson brothers. Corin Odin, a couple of former rock stars who retired here at a little small farm in Bright Falls. Finally, we have our antagonist, starting with a man named Motts, who claims to have kidnapped Alice. Mill Hartman, a famed psychiatrist who runs a local hospital and retreat that's known for helping former artists come over with their various problems. Then we have our main and primary antagonist, simply known as the Dark Presence. An ancient and evil entity that had been trapped underneath Cauldron Lake many years ago by Native American tribes. And has slowly over the years been trying to break out and get free. For our enemies, we have what is known as the Taken. These are ordinary people that the Dark Presence from Cauldron Lake slowly taken over their minds and destroy them. They look like normal people. They seem to have a kind of dark shadow that kind of clouds them and stores them just faintly, making them a little hard to really make out what their actual features are. They can take on a few various forms. You have your fairly ordinary ones that tend to just like run up and hit you. They can also throw various axes and objects from you from a little bit of a distance. You have some that are a little bit crouched over and a little bit faster. They're known for using various knives and sickles and tend to move in on you very quickly. Then you have your big kind of brutish characters known for using various axes, hammers, chainsaws. While they're not particularly fast, they take a great deal of punishment to take down. Then we have some few a little bit smaller enemies form of some flocks of birds, which were inspired by Alfred Hitchcock's works. The birds. And we have some little just dark globs of darkness that you occasionally find throughout the game. Well, they don't really actively attack you, they just act as little traps that you can just kind of wander to and take a little bit of damage. Finally, the Dark Presence takes on one more little form as it can actually inhabit inanimate objects, which it will use to just basically just throw at you. While not the scariest of enemies you'll probably run into, it can do quite a bit of damage, and when there's quite a few pieces being thrown at you at one time, they can be a little hard to dodge. To combat the darkness, you get various weapons. Let's start with your first item you're going to find, and the one you're going to be relying most heavily on, is the flashlight. While it can't do really do any permanent damage to the enemies, it's highly important because everything that is being touched by the Stark Presence you have to burn away the darkness that surrounded it, and the flashlight is the primary way of doing it. While the flashlight does have an infinite battery, you will need to use a focus feature on it in order to burn away the darkness much more quickly, and it does burn the battery up 
but you can find various replacement batteries you can place in there, or you can actually just wait for it to recharge on its own. Once you've burned away the darkness, you're going to use more conventional weapons. Starting with the revolver, modeled after a 357 Colt Python. While it's normally a fairly powerful gun, can take down most enemies two to three shots, the smaller enemies in one to two, bigger enemies will take quite a few. Now the downfall to the revolver is it does only hold six rounds and it does have to be manually, manually reloaded. You're going, to, you're going to want to pick your times of reloading very carefully, but you can actually speed up the reload animation by tapping the reload button speed up. Next we have the shotgun. Modeled after a over under, it's only going to hold two shots, but it does make four up for this by being quite powerful. Then you can find a pump action shotgun. While a little bit weaker than the over under, it can't hold up to eight shells. It can make it very, very valuable when dealing with large groups of enemies. And your final conventional weapon is the rifle. While it's very, very powerful, ammo for it, though, is going to be probably the rarest ones you're going to find throughout the game. And it doesn't have quite the inherent spread of the shotguns. While it's great against taking on single large bosses, shotgun can prove a little bit more valuable as it can hit multiple enemies. Now, to supplement your conventional weapons, you can get a couple of out of the ordinary weapons. Starting with the flare gun. Now due to the enemy's weakness to bright lights, flare gun is a very powerful enemy. You can even dispatch certain enemies in one hit. When you do find these, make sure you save these for very important moments. Then you have the flares. Which is basically a traditional handheld flare. While you're not going to be able to kill any enemies with it, it can help for a little bit of crowd control, as once you pop a flare, enemies will start backing away from you. And it can be used to take down their shields, even though it's very slow to do so. And finally, you have the flashbang grenades. These are very powerful and very useful, and can actually kill enemies instantly, or do very heavy damage to tougher ones. Make sure you save these for very important moments, and try to group together enemies when you can before you pop them. Now for the gameplay, we're primarily going to be moving back and forth between two different types of styles of play. You're going to have your daytime moments where you get to actually kind of walk around, talk to various key people, and learn a little bit about the town and what's going on. Which will then be followed up by the nighttime sequences, during which the darkness will actually be actively hunting you, and you're going to have to be fighting for your survival. You're going to be picking up a few various collectibles, starting with some thermoses, which don't really get you anything. It's just a fun little thing to pick up. And you can earn various trophies or achievements being on the platform you're playing on. But more importantly, you're going to find various manuscripts. Which will actually give you a little bit of various hints about what's coming up in the game. It plays a vital role in the story. And the game's going to be broken up into six chapters with ending credits 
well, previous on-scenes to kind of mimic a TV show, sort of feeling like Twin Peaks that they were going for. Now let's talk about the part of the game that I enjoyed the most. Let's dive into the story. So we start with Alan Wake narrating, which we're going to see a lot of throughout the game, as he recounts the story of a dream that he had a few weeks before the start of the game. While driving quickly down through a forest and a tunnel, he ends up accidentally running over a poor homeless man that admittedly is kind of just standing out in the middle of the road. Now, you did get a few quick little vibes. Hey, I think I kind of feel like I've seen something like this before, which quickly reminds me of a old 90s movie called I Know What You Did Last Summer. But there is no Ryan Felipe, there Michelle Geller, ever wonderful and entertaining Freddie Prince Jr., or the lovely Jennifer Love Hewitt in this car. Just a writer that we haven't quite gotten a chance to know yet. And much like them, Alan does get out of his car to see what horrible, horrible thing he has done to this person. He runs down the road to check out the body, or perhaps give it a little poke with a stick if you can find one. But the body is missing, so Alan starts to return to his car. And behind him, this homeless man reappears. And is admittedly, and has every right to be quite angry with Alan, and starts to run at him, while being kind of covered by what seems to be some sort of Darkness, Alan starts running his way down the street, starts trying to make his way toward a lighthouse far in the distance. As he nears the little cabin, a unknown man starts beckoning him to take shelter in this little cabin behind. As Alan runs in and shuts the door behind him, poor man that's trying to help Alan, well, he gets a little bit of a axe. But this cabin doesn't prove safe for Alan for very long. As this hobo is doing his best Jack Nicholson impersonation, starts axing his way through the door, before turning back in Tornado and starts to really rip this place up. Luckily, a bright light appears, burns away the door, chases away the darkness for a moment, and gives Alan a little bit of help with the form of a flashlight and a handgun, and teaches Alan that he's going to have to use the dark light in order to burn away the darkness. But finding his way through the forest, he eventually makes his way to the lighthouse where the tornado hits again. As Alan looks up into the light, top of the dark house, everything goes dark, something comes down toward him. But luckily all of this is just a dream for him as his wife Alice wakes him at this time. So we pick up with Alan Wake and his wife Alice traveling on a ferry to the small northwestern town of Bright Falls. Bright Falls is a rather small, peaceful town, not one for knowing having a lot of problems. And Alice had talked to Alan several weeks before to kind of take a little vacation and kind of get away from life. They were hoping to kind of get away from everything and stay hidden, not really being noticed. Unfortunately, just even on this little ferry with just a couple other people, a local radio DJ host, Pat Main kind of takes notice of who Alan is and tries his best to promise not to kind of give away through his. Not that it matters because, yeah, he turns out Alan Wake's a little famous and getting away is not quite so easy. So after landing at Bright Falls, they take off to the local diner called the Oh Dear Diner where we meet Rose, Alan Wake's biggest fan. He even has a giant cutout standee 
sitting right in front of the diner. So yeah, Alan, you're not hiding who you are. We meet a few various characters, such as the Anderson brothers and Rusty, as Alan starts looking for a man named Carl Stuckey, who Alan is supposed to be getting the key for, the little cabinet that they're going to be taking their little vacation from. Not finding Carl at the front of the diner, he starts making his way to the back, to the bathrooms, because, you know, everybody likes being bothered when they're, you know, doing their business. As he's walking his way into the darkness of the back hallways, he meets a woman named Cynthia Weaver, who cautions Alan about walking into darkness. But we ignore her anyways, because she's a crazy lady. And as he's walking his way into the darkness, he starts getting a little bit eerie and spooky. Just before he knocks on the bathroom door, an old lady just kind of comes out of nowhere and approaches Alan. Quickly apologizes to him, saying that Carl couldn't make it, and that she was sent in his stead to give him the key. Without really questioning too much about what's going on, Alan takes the key and quickly leaves with his wife Alice. Following the map that the old lady gave him along with the key, Alan and Alice make their way out to a little place called Divers Island, located on a small, small lake called Baldwin's Lake. Upon getting there, they start to make themselves comfortable. This nice little, adorable cabin located on this really small, tiny island. And Alan starts to explore the place as, I guess Alice is supposed to be doing all the heavy lifting and unloading a little SUV. Now as night starts to fall on the island, Alan makes his way into the cabin where he starts calling for Alice. He tells him that she's upstairs and asks him to come up and find her. But thinking things might be getting a little bit naughty, yeah, you'd be a little disappointed. But Alan does make his way up top and instead finding Alice King ready for uh, what could be a hot night. Instead finds a room with a typewriter inside. So being a little confused about what's going on, Alice does enter a room and break the news to Alan that, yeah, it's not naughty naughty time. Instead, she actually reveals the real reason that she kind of encouraged Alan to take this little vacation out here in the middle of nowhere. And she was kind of hoping that he would use this moment to kind of do a little bit of writing and see if he can probably break this writer's block, which has been troubling him for a couple of years now. Now, Alan behaves in a way that I think a lot of men would do. I know I would. Anyone who tries to basically just help them as they care about them and want to want them to overcome what they're coming through. Alan responds with anger. And he yells and berates Alice for trying to help him in any particular way, as you know, as any man should. You should, you know, try and ignore your problems. So he storms out, knowing that Alice won't follow him as she has a fairly strong fear of the darkness. And while standing out in the little bridge going into the lake and feeling maybe a little guilty for the way he behaved, Alan hears Alice screaming in the distance as the light for the cabins quickly go out. Running inside, Alan finds the cabin empty and bursting into the backside door of the cabin. He sees Alice being pulled into the lake and Alan dives inside right after her. But as he hits the water, 
everything turns to black. Alan awakens, feels fairly confused, as he is not in the cabin, or even at the lake. As he is in his SUV, hanging very precariously off of the edge, and finally, well, he almost probably could have died. So he breaks out of his little SUV just before it crashes off the edge. And not sure what's going on, starts making his way to a gas station in the distance. Well, instead of falling the road, which a most normal people would have, he decides to take a little shortcut through the forest. Now, walking his way through his forest, he starts finding various pages scattered throughout. Picking them up, he realizes that these are pages that he himself had written. Pages of a story he does not remember having ever wrote. Even more odd is these pages seem to be writing contain nothing. Not just some weird fictional story. It seems to be about events that are happening. Now, as he's making his way through the forest, he starts making his way through a logger's camp, where he finally gets to meet Carl Stuckey. But Carl's doesn't seem to be quite right. As he seems to be yelling and going off about just odd random things. As Alan starts to approach him, Carl turns and grows very violent. And even more, it seems to be a little hard to make out some sort of darkness, like some sort of smoke or shadow seems to be covering him. Fleeing from him, Alan starts making his way through the sloggers camp and back through the forest, encountering various other people who have all seemed to be entrapped by the same darkness. Eventually, Alan is able to find a flashlight, as well as a handgun, and is able to defend himself from these beings, as they seem to only have one thing on their mind. That is to chop his head off. With several people put down, and a poor Carl Stuckey put out of his misery, Alan's finally able to make his way to that gas station they saw in the distance. But upon getting there, he sees the sign for the local deer fest and realizes that something isn't quite right. According to the dates that's on this little float, the deer fest is just a couple days away, which means that somewhere Alan Wake had lost an entire week of his life. Though confused and desperate to help his wife Alice, Alan makes his way into the abandoned gas station and calls the police to get help. At which point we meet Sheriff Break at which point we meet Sheriff Sarah Breaker, who approaches Alan asking what happened, and he tries to tell her that his wife has gone missing, and that he had been staying at Cauldron Lake. Which confuses Sarah a great deal as there was no island at Cauldron Lake. In order to help Alan try to overcome his confusion, takes him there and shows him that yeah, he might just be a little bit crazy. The next day, we find ourselves at the local police station. And after being bandaged up by a doctor, Sheriff Sarah starts to kind of interrogate us a little bit, trying to figure out what's going on. But being a little afraid of admitting what all the odd stuff that's been going on that he won't get the help that he needs. 
Alan just kind of hides a lot of the truth and says he doesn't really know or remember what's going on. While trying to clear his head, Alan receives a little phone call from a mysterious man. He makes claims that he has Alice, and that if he wants to get her back, Alan's going to have to meet him at the place known as Lover's Peak at the local wildlife park. At this point, while trying to make his way out of the police station, we meet a one, Dr. Emil Hartman. A psychiatrist who runs a local retreat that's known for helping various artists. Who tells Alan that he had been in contact with Alice and that she was trying to help set up an appointment for Dr. Mill to help Alan and wants to kind of help Alan figure out what's going on at this time. Now during all of this, as Alan's trying to figure out how to get away from the police station, his best friend and publicist, A1 wonderful Barry Willer, shows up and helps Alan get away. Alan, while initially hesitant to reveal to Barry all the odd things that did go on, eventually decides to be truthful with him. Even though Barry thinks that Alan pretty much just lost his mind, they decide to head off to the local wildlife park where they rent a cabin and wait for nightfall. Once night falls, Alan asks Barry to stay behind as he was supposed to approach the kidnapper alone heads off and starts making his way to Lover's Peak. But as he's making his way to the wildlife center, large and strange noises start happening. When Alan gets there, he finds that something seems to have attacked the center, and poor Rusty has been very badly hurt. Alan tries to help Rusty what he can, but Rusty is fairly confused as everything that happened to him the stuff that he had read in some pages that he just found laying around. Asking Alan to go turn on the lights, Alan makes his way to the office, but finds an axe embedded in the circuit breaker. He returns back to help Rusty what he can, but at this time, Rusty has disappeared. With no other choice but to just move on, Alan starts making his way out the back of this little center, where he's attacked by a now-possessed Rusty, as well as a bunch of other people. So fighting them off, Alan starts running his way through this national forest, making his way to Peak, all the while having to fight off various people who've all been taken by the darkness. Finally making his way to Lover's Peak, Alan meets this stranger, a man known as Mots. Having lost his gun just before meeting Mots, and refusing to give the gun to Alan so he could help fend off the wave of Taken, they're now attacking them. Alan's left with no choice but to use some flares to kind of help defend off and break the shields on these guys as Mots tries to kill them himself, which is not the best of jobs because he kind of focus on the wrong people. But eventually, you do get everybody killed, and Mots reveals to Alan that if he wants to save Alice, he's going to have to bring him the entire complete manuscript, the pages that Alan's been picking up. Manuscripts for a book called The Departure, which Alan had depended pages for a book called The Departure, a book that Alan had originally had titled that he meant to write years ago, where he was struck with his writer's block. So, Al, so Alan is understandably very angry at this, takes a good strike at Mott's, 
They both go falling off of Lover's Peak. Alan wakes and is able to retrieve this handgun. But not before Mots takes off into the darkness. Having received a With no other options of what to do available to him, Alan starts making his way back through the forest to reach Barry. Alan's way receives a call from a very, very desperate scared Barry as a giant flock of birds has started attacking the cabin very violently. The getting there, we're able to fend off the flash. The getting there, we're able to defend off the birds and start a handy dandy flashlight. And Barry realizes that maybe we're not quite as crazy as he thought we were. Receiving another call from the kidnapper, he gives Alan two days to finish the book and hand it to him if he wants to save Alice. Alan tries to sit down and finish this book while sending Barry into town trying to figure out what he can about what's been going on. Unfortunately, his writer's block is still very much existent. He can't make any progress on writing this book. Fortunately for them, just before the last day, they receive a little call from Rose. He makes claims of having more pages of the manuscript. He's willing to get them if they'll come meet him. So Barry and Alan head off toward Rose's little trailer park. They can finally complete the manuscript and possibly save Rose, or possibly save Alice. Arriving at the trailer park, Looking for Rose's home, Barry reveals to Alan what he was able to learn. Back during the 70s, there did actually exist a island on Cauldron Lake. And on it was a little cabin that was owned by a local poet known as Thomas Zane. A man who had fallen in love with a local woman named Barbara Jagger. But they had both mysteriously vanished. And shortly afterwards, the island itself disappeared beneath the waters of the lake after a volcanic eruption happened. Finding Rose's home, Barry and Alan join her and sit down for a nice little cup of tea. And despite her rather odd behaviors, they assume everything's going to be alright, but they quickly both fall asleep. As it turns out, yeah, she may have been a little bit possessed by the darkness. Alan wakes up that night and realizing that he's running very, very short on time. It tries to go get the car so that he can take Barry out of there. But unfortunately, on the way to the car, we're met by one, Agent Robert Nightingale. A man who doesn't waste any time to quickly open fire on us. Despite Sheriff Sarah Breaker's pleas to maybe not be quite so reckless. So Alan's forced to run through the darkness and avoid the police. But, turns out, not everything is so easy for the police, because while they're hunting Alan, the darkness starts to regain its strength, and seems to start attacking the police themselves. With no idea of where else to go at this time, Alan sees a radio tower in the distance, and decides to make his way toward it, hoping to gain some help from the local DJ, Pat Maine. Now, Pat seemed like a nice guy, but unfortunately, when we get there, very quick to announce over the radio that, hey, Alan Wake's here, which ends up alerting all the local police to where he is, and they all show up. Robert Nightingale pulls his usual routine and immediately opens fire once again. Making his way through the darkness, Alan receives another phone call from Alice. 
but she doesn't seem quite herself during this call. But with everything going on, Alan really doesn't have much chance to really think about this. As he's stumbling through the darkness, he finally finds himself attacked at another little, it seems to be a lumber yard, by a bulldozer that has been attacked by the dark. Having evaded the FBI agent once again, Alan starts making his way through the forest as he's looking for some sort of vehicle or something that can make his way to the meeting. As he's stumbling through the darkness, we receive yet another phone call from his wife Alice. But something in her voice doesn't seem quite right to Alan. But he doesn't get much chance to really ponder on this as he finds himself being attacked by a bulldozer. One that's been possessed by the Stark Presence. Managing to just barely defeat this thing, Alan's able to find a car just as the sun starts to rise. Driving our way to the coal mine, Alan makes it there a few hours before the meeting starts and waits inside one of the buildings. Unfortunately for Alan, Mott, who is the kidnapper, never arrives. So as darkness falls once again, we receive yet another phone call from Mott, who tells Alan he's got to meet him at yet another peak. So making our way through this coal mine, and finding our way through various enemies and more taken, well and more possessed barrels and pallets and other ordinary objects that are just being thrown our way, we finally make our way to this peak. Arriving at the peak, Alan actually overhears the kidnapper crying. Seems overly upset, for he's able to learn that the kidnapper ever actually even had Alice. That he'd been put up to this by someone else who was trying to get him, collect the pages for him. Confronting the kidnapper, Alan's unfortunately unable to get any more details out of him. As the Dark Presence shows up once again, is able to suck up Mott's and goes after Alan. But just before he's pulled inside, Alan's able to grab a flare, pop it as he's pulled up into its little wind tunnel. Ends up weakening it, where it throws him out into Cauldron Lake. But just as he starts to pass out, some unknown figure pulls him out. Suffering from various visions, Alan awakens and finds himself in Cauldron Lake Lodge, former hotel that Dr. Emil Hartman had turned into a mental institute for a help struggling artist. He takes Alan a little tour of the place and reveals to Alan that he believes that Alice had actually been killed and drowned in the lake. He was trying to help Alan come to terms with all of the various things he saw. He believed they were all just things that he made up and saw in his mind. While on this tour, they meet the Anderson brothers once again, Thor and Odin. While Hartman takes a little excuse to go check on why the power seems to be going on and off, the Anderson brothers reveal to Alan that they have something for him that he may need in order to combat the darkness. And that's located at their farm, that when he can get away, he should head there in order to obtain this valuable information. With this information, realizing that not everything Saul was just something in his mind, as others are aware of this darkness too, Alan is pushed back to his room where he's encouraged to continue writing the book. That night, while in his room, a great deal of noise is heard downstairs. And as the guard that was watching over Alan makes his way down to find it, Alan follows him 
we find the Anderson brothers causing quite a bit of a ruckus. Using this opportunity, Alan starts to break his way out of this hotel. We're on the way, he gets into Emil Hartman's office and discovers a tape recorder. That's a conversation between Emil Hartman and a phone call that he had with Alice. It was about Alan checking in and receiving help at the hospital. Realizing that the voice on this tape recorder saying all the same things that he heard on all the calls with the kidnapper, Alan finally realizes that the kidnapper was actually working with Emil Hartman all the time. He was seeking to try to force Alan to finishing the book so that he could take it for himself. Taking all the manuscript pages that he had collected so far, Emil Hartman wanders in the office and finds Alan. He tries to beg him to join him, as he wants to use the power of the lake in order to create something wonderful. But the dark presence appears once again. Now flees from it while locking Emil in the office alone with the darkness. Escaping from the lodge and making his way through a hedge maze was very much inspired by Stephen King's The Shining, Alan's able to reunite with Barry, who very much begs for Alan to just flee, flee while he's got a chance. But Alan insists on actually going to this farm as he wants to save Alice, that the Andersons may actually have some very valuable information that can help him do so. Arriving at the farm, everything turns out to not be quite as easy as Alan had hoped for, as a massive amount of taken start to approach on the fields. Fortunately for Barry and Alan, a huge stage had been built by the Anderson quite a while ago. They were very famous rock stars. And using all the various stage lights and fireworks, Barry and Alan are able to successfully defend off massive waves of Taken. Entering the house, they turn on the lights and a song starts playing. Listening to it, Alan quickly realizes that this Lady of the Little Light that they keep singing about actually none other than the one Cynthia Weaver. And that she must possess the item that they need in order to confront the darkness. The waiting for dawn, or they leave the farmhouse, Barry and Alan decide to try out some of the Anderson's famous moonshine. Moonshine that was made from water from Boulder Lake. You would think it's probably not a good idea, but hey, what else are you going to do sitting out on the farm? Go nowhere, waiting for dawn. Drinking this moonshine actually causes Alan to have various visions, where he slowly starts to remember the events that happened to him during that week he was missing. Having been trapped underneath the waters of the lake, Alan was being forced by the darkness in order to write his manuscript departure so they could use his power in order to escape the lake finally. Realizing that what was happening, Alan actually had wrote himself into the story in order to combat the darkness and was able to allow himself to escape that he could find some way to free Alice. When morning finally does arrive, Alan reawakens from his visions, finds a one Agent Nightingale standing over him. This time, Nightingale shows a little bit of common sense and actually arrests us, instead of just opening fire on us. So we're taken in to the local police station, where Nightingale Sheriff Raker and trying to investigate us and figure out what's going on. But Nightingale is very rash and very angry, claiming that Alan did all sorts of bad things and he has proof. 
and he had read everything that he had happened in the manuscript pages that he had found. He even claimed that he had made plans to kill an FBI agent. But as Breaker tries to defend Alan, they need to be a bit more calm about things. Nightingale realizes that events are starting to happen just as he's read. Suddenly, the giant tornado appears once again and rips open part of the police station, sucking away Agent Nightingale. Realizing that Alan was actually being truthful about all the strange stuff that's been going on. Sheriff Sarah decides to help him out. And offers to give him a little ride out to find Cynthia Weaver using the local helicopter. But fighting their way through the town, Sarah actually gets to help you out while you get to use your flashlight to kind of break off the darkness from these various taken. Where you grab the key from the local town hall for the police copter. Meet up with Barry once again. And you make your way to the helicopter pad. You're able to take off after spinning off more darkness. Flying off to the local power station where Cynthia Weaver oddly makes her home. Alan's accidentally knocked out of the helicopter due to a bird attack. Finding her way through the darkness to the power station. Especially with a lot of great deal of help from Sarah using the police copter's spotlight, finally able to meet up with Cynthia Weaver. She reveals that she had been trusted with a object many years ago from a good friend of hers, a one Thomas Zane. And this object is hidden in a place known as the Wellert Room, which is actually located inside Boulder Lake Dam. Telling Alan that they need to shut off the power at the power station that they can use some tunnels that actually lead them to the dam. I was able to successfully shut it off, but as they're making their way down the tunnels, he receives another call from Barry, for which they hear a crash as another group of birds had attacked the helicopter. Alan, not wanting to leave his friend and Sheriff Sarah behind, leaves Cynthia behind in the tunnel as she makes her way down so he can go rescue them. Together, they leave the wreckage of the helicopter and make their way through the darkness once again and fight their ways to Alder Lake Dam, where they're able to meet up with Cynthia Weaver once again. There, she takes them to the well-lit room, where inside, Al Wake finds an item called the Clicker, something that he'd actually given Alice quite some time before. It was an object his mother had given him when he was a child in order to help him fend off darkness, as well as the monsters that live inside. Also is a page that was written by Thomas Zane himself, which told Alan that he had written the, the clicker to existence in order to have something to combat the darkness. And he had written these events that brought Alan here so the darkness could finally be defeated by him. Realizing that Alan needs to fight this himself, and he has to follow the events that were written in the pages. He says farewell to Barry and Sarah, and leaves the dam and makes his way realizing that he has to do this himself and follow the page realizing that he has to follow things on the pages exactly as they were written Alan leaves Realizing that he has to follow the events as they were written on the pages, 
Alan bids farewell to Alice and Sarah Breaker and leaves the dam. Finding that everything has inner light after clicking the breaker, he starts driving his way to head back to Cauldron Lake. But when he reaches the tunnel, a darkness starts to fall over everything once again. And Alan's forced to fight his way through massive waves of the Taken as he's making his way to Cauldron Lake. Fighting his way through massive waves of Taken, possessed cars and objects, birds, Alan finally gets to Cauldron Lake where he sees the tornado once again, with the form of Barbara Yeager right in the middle of it. Using the flare gun, Alan's finally able to weaken the tornado long enough he's able to dive into the lake. Blacking out upon heating the water, Alan awakens and finds himself once again in his New York City apartment with his wife Alice. But he realizes not everything is quite right. And upon looking at the typewriter in his office, he sees one single word, flicker. Using a flashlight to burn the page, the clicker comes back into existence, and upon clicking it, the illusion that has surrounded him fades away. Thomas Zane appears once again as a light, and reveals to Alan that he needs to reach the center of the dark presence and use the clicker in order to defeat the darkness for good. When making his way through this very distorted place, Alan comes across various typed words appearing throughout the world. And using his light, he's able to burn these words away and create new objects, where he's finally able to reach the island in the middle of the presence. Burning away the last words, the cabin rematerializes. In front of it stands the form of Barbara Jagger, with a giant hole in her chest. Alan reaches inside with the clicker in his hand, clicks it. Once again, he burns away. Heading up into the cabin, Alan makes his way to the second floor where he finds the typewriter and sits down to finally finish the story. With the story finally finished, we get a flashback. It shows Alan jumping into the lake after Alice. And after what seems to be a little rewind time, Alice emerges from the lake and swims to the shore. But when she turns around to see where Alan is, finds that he is gone, as well as the island. We then move to Bright Falls. As we see Deerfest, the town has started prospering once again. We get flashes of the various characters we met throughout the game. They're still alive. Putting A1 Agent Nightingale seems to be not quite himself. Finally, we get a flashback to Alan typing away in his office in the cabin, as he had realized that when he was finishing the story, that story had to maintain balance. Now for an Alice to be freed, that meant that he had to stay behind in the darkness. In it, he writes his final words. It is not a lake. It is an ocean. And with that, we end Alan Wake. So we do get a couple of DLCs. One called the Signal, the other the Rider. It shows the events of Alan after defeating the presence, being trapped underneath Cauldron Lake. It very much uses the feature we saw at the end of the game, where his various words could be seen floating throughout the world. By using the flashlight, you can activate serious effects such as explosions, bright lights, even cause items to materialize. DLCs end with Alan sitting down his typewriter once again, starting a new book, All the Return, 
in the know that he realizes that escape might be impossible, he has to try something. Fortunately, in a few days, we're going to be able to grab Alan Wake 2, find out what Bonnie befell the famous writer. Alright, so this is a fairly good game. I would recommend you try it out. Well, I did play this recently, and I would say some of the shooting doesn't feel as quite as great. It can be a little bit frustrating with enemies occasionally just kind of appearing randomly behind you and hitting you in the back. Still a fairly enjoyable game that does hold up fairly well. So we're going to be picking back up with our original plans. Next episode, we're going to be discussing Amnesia the Bunker. After that, we're going to be covering another indie horror game. I think we're going to be talking about Midnight Submersion. Afterwards, we'll be taking a look at Scorn. So if you have anything y'all like for me to cover, talk about, got any stories you'd like to share, or any thoughts on the game, please email me at pixelhorrorpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be talking about that stuff on future episodes. You can also follow me on Twitter at JustNewGaming. Learn when my various episodes are going to drop. As well as send me some little comments or messages if you'd like to there. If you'd like to see a video version of this, it'll be exclusive on YouTube. We also have video playthroughs of this game, as well as several of various other horror games as well. If you'd like to help support the podcast, there's actually a few different ways you could do that. Make sure you subscribe, like, and share. That helps out a long way. Leave a good rating when possible. If you'd like to help out in some other ways, you can actually scroll down to the description below. I do have some links where you can help in other financial ways if possible. If not, it's all appreciated, guys. So until next time, guys, I do appreciate y'all. Don't forget to keep your flashlights handy, stay out of those dark corners, and try your best to survive until tomorrow.